Hello, and welcome to Revolution 22's teaching podcast. We are a church from the downtown area in Boise, Idaho. Thank you for joining us today and hearing this week's sermon. We pray that God's word will be received and will bear fruit in your life. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, you can slip your hands up. The ushers will grab one for you as well. As we said last week, this is the beginning of a new section for the whole letter of the church to the church in Corinth. This is a section of scripture where really what's being dealt with is the gathering and what the gathering meant and and what it means for the the church and how the church is to operate. Last week talked about authority. This week we'll talk about the the Lord's Supper. And then we move into, for the next few weeks, the gifts and what the point behind the gifts in the church is. A few weeks ago, I started talking about communion. Today we will take communion. We'll have an opportunity to do that together together. Three weeks ago in chapter 10, I discussed kind of the beginning and what the purpose and kind of a big view of communion. I would encourage you to go back and listen to that as I won't be covering most of that today. We'll just stay in the text where he has us. So let's go ahead and dig in and read uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34. A nice big chunk of scripture. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you, not, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who, sh- who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty considering the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment about the other things I will give direction when I come. This This is an interesting section where we have to kind of understand a little bit of the context of what's going on. There was a thing that kind of been coined the idea of a love feast in the in the first century Corinth. Love feast was a basically kind of our version today is a potluck, where basically everyone would come together in the church and they'd bring something to eat and share in this meal. Most of the time, it would be hosted in a uh, a wealthier person's home, and this is where they were going and they're gathering together. And what the early church had done is in these gatherings, they would still read scripture together sometimes, and they would still partake of the Lord's Supper together. But in Corinth, in this day, one of the issues in the church was that they, instead of operating the love feast the way it was, they started implementing in the Lord's Supper and doing those things, but instead of 
holding one as true, they started operating more and more and more like the culture in so many different ways we've already seen in Corinth. And so there were these factions that set up. Well, what happened is, is if you were to have a love feast, there were these different groups of people. And this is why he says, when he says, when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. The, the entirety of scriptures command us to not forsake gathering. But yet at the beginning of this, it almost seems like the Apostle Paul is saying, it's not good that you guys are getting together because what you're doing is actually for the worse, not for the better. This is probably the strongest of language he uses in kind of his rebuke of, of the church itself. I do not commend you and I will not commend you. This is, this is a really big deal. And why is it such a big deal? Because the way that the church in Corinth is operating is actually differently than the way the church is supposed to be operating. It looks more and more like culture as opposed to the church being the church. And so here's what was happening is they would have these feasts and they'd have these gatherings. And what would happen is they would bring all the people who come. The rich people would probably show up sooner than, than anyone else because they didn't have as much they had to do. And they would bring the most amount of food. And the rich people were providing food for other classes, which was great. But when they would come together, instead of keeping them in one big room, they would move themselves. A lot of times what happens is the rich would put some leftovers, so some partial food kind of in this area, and the rich would then go to a separate room with a, a better spread, with the finer utensils and the finer things. I mean, picture going on a picnic, and you show up with, like, with another family, and you show up with like a piece of bread and, and like a, a piece of celery, and the family next to you shows up with a full spread and utensils, and they got like a six-course meal, and they just sit there and eat in front of you. So in their mind, the rich are being like, hey, we're being kind to the poor by moving ourselves to another room. But what was happening is instead of this just being a love feast, instead of this just being a gathering where they got together and they just celebrated the goodness of God and ate together, they were also partaking of the Lord's Supper. And they were doing this together. And the, the, the skilled tradespeople would often show up a little bit later because they were having to work and they would bring some stuff. But then the poor, the slaves would show up the latest because they would be forced to work till sundown most of the time by the rich people in the area. And so they'd show up and there would be leftovers barely left for them to eat or partake. And people were getting drunk in the drinking of this. A lot of times in the communion with the wine, what they would do is they would water it down just to make sure that there was never a risk of any kind of effect on it when they were doing communion, the Lord's Supper. And this is what's happening in this culture, is that there's, there's these divisions that he talks about. He says, that there's divisions among you, which he's like, I get. Divisions in some way help us see that there's value, that there are those that are really following Jesus and those that aren't. So he's saying it's not all bad, that sometimes the true followers will be found out and that will be divisive. But the way that they're dividing here isn't like they were in the first four chapters. The first four chapters, if you remember back a long time ago when we were looking at those, the divisions were about who they followed and, and the rhetoric and the way that things were being communicated. It was, I follow Paulus or I follow Paul. The divisions that are happening here, are these factions, are socioeconomic. They're dividing by the rich and the poor, and they're separating people out in this way. And it's not the heart of God. See, when, when you step up to the table of the Lord's Supper, which we're gonna, again, we will have time to take communion today. It isn't meant to be a part of any socioeconomic position or of any race or people group. We come to the table equal in value and image bearers of the most high God, no matter what our background is or our financial statuses are. We are equal, one in Christ. Christ cannot be divided. And what the, the church in Corinth was doing is they were coming to this table fully divided. They were coming separated in socioeconomic levels the rich were enjoying a feast while the poor were, were not experiencing anything. This is just not the way it's supposed to be. The Lord's Supper must be marked by clear manifestations of unity and concern for others. 
And since their supper reflected none of those values, it could not rightfully be described as the Lord's Supper. But yet that's what they were doing. They were continuing to perpetuate this idea that even in the kingdom of God, your financial status mattered. At the table, if, there was, if they were in the same room, if the room had been large enough in the home for it to happen, the rich would have the conversation. They would usually have great arguments with each other. But even the, the skilled tradesmen and the people below weren't allowed to laugh at the things that they were saying or even have a voice into what they were speaking. They, they saw them as truly less than. And that's just not the heart of God. When we come to the Lord's Supper, we proclaim Jesus Christ. How can we proclaim Jesus Christ when he says he cannot be divided and we are divided as a church, and that's what's going on in this culture. And so he's saying, look, this is wrong. I will not commend you in this. This is, this is just something that you should, you should understand that you're doing in a very, very horrible way. And then he goes on, and he describes in verses 23 through 26, he kind of describes for us what communion to this day is supposed to look like. If we don't have these verses, if you take these verses and just kind of pluck them out of Scripture, we don't really have a clear definition on how to go about it. Really, we, this, is kind of, this is written probably a little bit before the Gospel of Luke where we get the, the fullest there. And so if this is gone, we don't see how we're supposed to do it. But he says, this is what it's supposed to do. This section is really what communion's based on. This is where we see it. We see that this is, we repeat these words as a reminder of what it really is about. It's our common link throughout the church history to think, but think about it this way. When we take the Lord's Supper, when we do this step, we are literally lining ourselves to the church throughout history. And we're coming together throughout history to take this together. There was no longer any factions or divisions. The Lord's Supper was established, if you see at the beginning of verse 23, he says, for I received. Now it's important that we see this because again, just earlier in this chapter, he talked about the traditions. This is important because there was a push on the Apostle Paul and his authority as whether or not he had done this or whether or not he had the authority to lead them with the way that they were hoping he would lead them. And so this is him saying, look, I didn't make this up. I receive this. Now, scholars are all over the board. Did he receive it through revelation from Jesus Christ and the few different times that he had had an opportunity to interact with Jesus Christ that we see in Acts? Or was it passed down by the apostles? Either way, it doesn't really matter because it's showing that the authority is in place. This is a tradition that's been in place that he didn't create. He's not making it up. This is something that he received. And it's the Lord's Supper, not the Apostle Paul's Supper, not the church's supper. It is the Lord's Supper. We see in the Gospels that Jesus says he will not partake of this meal again until everything is completed and everyone is in his glory. It's his supper. When we do the Lord's Supper, not only do we do it in remembrance of the blood and the body, which is what he's saying there, which is for us to say, we recognize that Jesus Christ spilled his blood. It's the blood that is the new covenant that he said in the Gospel of John. This is my new covenant that I give you, that you can be deemed righteous because of what I have done that you can stand before the throne room of God and in the throne room of God because of what my blood has been spilled on your behalf. And then the body is represented of the both, when we look at the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is why it's so weird for us to think that we could take communion divided. There's only one body that's taught all through scripture and Christ is the head of that body. So we can't divide it. So when we take the Lord's Supper, we proclaim it as a vow publicly that I align myself to the truth of Jesus Christ. I align myself to him as my savior, as my Lord. I give my life for his life because he gave his life for me to have life. This is what communion does. We proclaim 
not only his death, burial, and resurrection, but we proclaim the future promises. He says, do this as often as you gather in remembrance of me. Don't forget what I've done. Not only are we proclaiming what Jesus has done for us, but you're also proclaiming that he will come again and he will take everything and flip it to the way it's supposed to be. And every knee will bow. We proclaim, we proclaim that he will come again, that his promise stands true. We take it as believers in all times and proclaim the Lord's death when we do so. Basically, when we say we proclaim the Lord's death, it's, I wrote it down this way. It's when we are all united in a new covenant with God and each other. It's a statement that we believe that the death of Jesus Christ was something that freed me from my rightful punishment from God, my death. It shows our unity and accountability to one another. It's our way of celebrating. It's an act of defiance of the flow and the rhythm of the world around us that is descending into hell. It's our declaration that we are not defined by our earthly distinctions of any kind before the Lord and that we are united in rebellion under King Jesus against the powers and the principalities at work in this present age. When we take the Lord's Supper, guys, something greater is happening than a little bit of juice and a little bit of bread. It's not just a symbol. It's what it represents. It's what it shows. It's, it's a declaration. We can't come to the Lord's Supper or communion or Eucharist, whatever you call it. We can't come to that lighthearted or flippantly. We have to come to an understanding that this is a big deal. He goes on to show just how big of a deal it is in verses 27 and down. He says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. What does it really mean to be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord? The word in Greek here is essentially that if you take communion in an unworthy way, you're shedding the blood of Jesus again. So one scholar says it this way. He says, to worship Christ in a way that shows disrespect towards those who have been united with the Lord, have become one with him in spirit, and who share or participate in his body and blood is to sin not just against them, but also against the covenant reaffirmed in the meal. When we take of the Lord's Supper, we are reaffirming the covenant that comes, the new covenant that brings us life, that sets us right before the Lord and against the Lord of the meal and of those brothers and sisters in Christ. When we take it in an unworthy way, we are proclaiming something that isn't true of what it is. If we are divided as a people, if we are flippant with what it means, then we're saying that what Jesus did on the cross for us was just, it was a, it was a pretty neat deal, but it's not that big a deal. If we come to the table with carrying sin, unrepentant sin, then we are saying that it really doesn't matter that we have this. Like, this is just a symbolism and this, that's it. It'd be the same way as if we minimize baptism. It's just a symbol of what's really happening. No, it's, it's a first act of obedience that's commanded of us to do in the Great Commission. It says you can't take it in an unworthy manner. Another scholar says it this way. He says, if you want to know what taking an unworthy manner looks like, look at the context that we've just seen. It would say that it means failing to appreciate what the bread and the cup signify, that Christ loved the church and died for her. And it would say that, that not feeling any remorse, that our attitudes and our actions are inconsistent with the love of Christ. It means not renouncing those attitudes and actions and turning to the path of the love, not trusting Jesus for forgiveness and for the power to walk in love. To take communion in an unworthy manner is to live our lives opposite of what the, the very thing we're declaring in communion, which is the salvation we have in Jesus Christ. It'd be to say that I'm gonna take this communion, I'm gonna take the Lord's Supper, I'm gonna partake in this situation, and even though it's proclaiming the goodness of Jesus Christ, and even though it's proclaiming his blood that was spilled for me and the, and the body that, is, that unites us as one, and even though it's proclaiming all that, I'm gonna live my life contrary to that. 
And in the way that the church in Corinth was living their life contrary to that was that they were dividing the body of Christ. They were creating factions. The way that we do it is we live either in divisiveness or we live a completely sin-filled life with no remorse or repentance or confession of sin ever. This is why he goes on and says, let each person examine himself. This examination process is just beautiful if you think about it. This is kind of, this is one of those things I feel like is maybe made, it's not extended enough when we think about the Lord's Supper. And really, again, this is a practice that we should do on a regular basis. But he's saying, hey, specifically around the Lord's Supper, before you proclaim the salvation you have in Christ and the life that you now have in him, before you proclaim the goodness of who he is, examine yourself, look at your heart. And not in a condemning way, but examine, does, does your life align with what you're about to proclaim? Does what you're about to declare in action through the Lord's Supper, does your life align with that? Or would, would those be hypocritical or, or incongruent with each other? This is what the examination process is. To examine oneself means to examine one's compliance with the covenant as reflected in their ways of relating to other members in the community. So here in this text, he's saying, look, in examining yourself, how are you doing with the other people in the community of God, with your brothers and sisters in community? How are you doing with that? Look, we just came through Thanksgiving, right? And most Thanksgivings, most people have some family that they get together, and you always have that one guest that you're kind of like, mm, I mean, I'm glad you're here because you're family, but like, you're kind of hoping you don't have to interact with them as much. Am I alone in this? I mean, my parents go to this church, so I just said that out loud, okay? So like, I, but like, everyone has that, right? What he's saying right here is when we examine ourselves, that can't be true of God's kingdom. We don't sit at the table and go, oh, you made it. No, we celebrate in the glory of Christ that we're all together. This is what examining means for them. For us, as we look further, is if there is divisiveness, if it is with someone else, it's discerning in us, is there something in me that is divisive towards another member in the body of Christ? Am I harboring any bitterness or any frustrations or uncommunicated sinfulness? Have I allowed my thought process to, to move to a sinful spot? And even though this person may have no idea, it's still on me to be at peace with all men, to examine oneself. But most often when the Apostle Paul tells people to examine themselves, he wants them to examine whether they are truly genuine followers of Jesus. That's where we usually see that show up in Scripture. It's not just to examine your actions and your steps, but it's to examine, are you truly following the Lord? We see this in 1 John 3, 19 through 24. It says, by this, we shall know that we are, the we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. So we're gonna know. Here's how we know, ready? For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. He knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because he, we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. Just as he has commanded us, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. We know that we are saved because we keep his commandments. We can see that we are true, genuine followers of Jesus because we see that we remain. That word abide means to remain because we remain with God. We live true to what his scriptures say of us and command of us. So when we proclaim our salvation in Christ through the Lord's Supper, it aligns with the way that we live our lives following his commandments. We don't see what he asks of us in his scriptures as something optional to do. This is how we know. So what does this mean for us today to examine ourselves? 
the first question would be is, are you a follower of Jesus? Because if, if you are, if you've submitted your life to Jesus, you've surrendered your life to him as Lord and Savior, you've given yourself to him, that means that all other religion falls away. That means that entirely, you submit yourself entirely to what his scripture says and what he commands of you. Then if so, then we should be marked by repentance. If we're gonna say that we are a follower of Jesus, then we need to examine ourselves once again before the Lord and anything that is in us that is not of him, we need to be willing to confess and repent of. And and let me say this really clearly. As Christians, as followers of Jesus, we should be so good at confession, forgiveness, and repentance because to even come into the throne room of God, it takes us confessing our inability to do so and confessing our sins and repenting and turning and committing ourselves to the Lord. In that one act, we learned exactly what it takes to live for God. So that should be a perpetual thing in our lives over and over and over again where we continue to just just slough off the things that are of this flesh and of this world and continue to confess it and, and get it out and repent and turn ourselves from those things to the Lord and follow him in faithfulness and obedience, walking by the spirit of God. We should be so good at this. Another way that we can examine ourselves is with God. Have you repented truly of your sin that sent Jesus to the cross in the first place? Or are you taking it lightly? With with God, it's it's not just a, oh, he knows and I don't have to say anything. It's It's a humility to say, God, even though you know, I still want to confess this to you. I still want to be, I want to be whole before you. Another way that we can examine ourselves is with other people. Is there a brother or sister, specifically a brother or sister, that you have issues with? Maybe you wouldn't say you hate them, but you'd kind of be bummed if they got set next to you at the table. Like that's, a, that's a heart condition. We operate, unfortunately, as a church, we should look so much more diverse than we do as a church right now, every church as a whole. Look, the Lord's Supper, when it's in his day, will have every tribe, every, every nation, every tongue present every socio and economic class. There won't be any factions. Everyone will be present before the God. That's the kingdom of God. And we're, we're living here today. So when we partake in gathering together, we should, we should be diverse in our socioeconomic status. We should be diverse in the way that we live with people of different backgrounds and, and colors. But do you have an issue with someone? Do you have an issue with people groups? Do you have an issue with another small C church? Anyone that bears the name of Christ, if you have issue, if you have anger or unresolved issues, or or if you know that something's wrong, but you're just waiting for them to say something, the scriptures command you, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. It doesn't say, unless you're waiting for them to come talk to you first. That's not in there. So as people of, of God, as children of God, we are to be repentant. We are to be examining our hearts. We need to spend time reconciling before we proclaim that we are both a part of the same body and the body of Christ. It makes no sense to go to the Lord's Supper divided with another believer because you're saying that then the body of Christ is divided and that just does not compute or make sense. He goes on to this next section, which is kind of a super shocking and and sobering section where he he says, he says, let a person examine himself in verse 28. Then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And then verse 30, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Now, this is a a big topic in here that, that really plainly says 
that we're supposed to, the reason why we examine ourselves is because we examine ourselves in a way to keep ourselves from condemnation. Now, now hear me on this. He's not saying that the believers will be condemned because Romans 8, 1 says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But he is saying here, he says this, he says, look, if, you, if you're gonna examine yourself, then you gotta recognize that there's a reason why you might be sick or weak or some have died. He says in verse 32, he makes it pretty plain. The reason why that is happening is because of God's judgment. It says it right there. And amazingly, the, the weakness, the illness, the death of some Christians are called in verse 32, the Lord's discipline, which prevents condemnation with the world. Our illness, weakness, and even our death could be God's grace. Now, I wanna be really clear on this for a second. It's not saying that every illness and every weakness and every death is because God is disciplining. That's not what it's saying. But it's also not saying that that, that may not be the case. If we are his children, he, he promises to discipline those whom he loves. There are people that are operating as children of God in sin and so forth. The Lord, to get their attention, has brought about weakness and illness and disease and even death at point because why? The point was there. So that they may not be what? Not judged, but condemned with the world. The condemnation is for those that are apart from Christ. Say, look, you, 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 can't, you can't not be disciplined if you're a child of God. Discipline is one of those things that we struggle with. Again, you can't overapply this section. There are people that will literally die because they're old and aged and that's gonna happen or they have sickness that has nothing to do with God's discipline, has everything to do with the fact that we die because sin had entered the world. And there are people that will, will die because God has disciplined them. And there are people that will die because of their own sinfulness. So it's not a blanket in this way, but we have to recognize that God is not taking this lightly. And believers as a whole tend to forget about discipline. We have a lot of people that struggle with, with the idea of this. If you're someone who's struggling with sin and you are a child of God, you can expect that God is going to use some trial, some hardship to separate you from the sin that you are caught in. Let's look at Hebrews 12, 6 talks about this. 12, 6 through 11. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Listen, every child he has adopted in, he's going to discipline. It's, it's just natural. It's going to happen. If you're a parent, you understand, hopefully, that discipline has to be some point of parenting. It says, if you're his child, you will be disciplined. It is for discipline that you have to endure. Why? God is treating you as sons. That's the beautiful sentence there. You're being treated as an adopted child of God. You're not just some person out there. You're a child of God. And he says, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and, and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us, listen to this, for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God is not unkind in doing this. In fact, in the context of the scripture, he's saying literally he will discipline you so that you don't have to join in the condemnation of the world, but instead will be judged. Discipline is a good thing. God is is active in our growth and our sanctification. And some of that may come through discipline. So in this section, when it talks about those that are either ill or weak or in sin or, or dying, 
there's a chance that that may be because of discipline. There's also a chance that that may be because of sin. But, but in the context of this, what he's making a very clear point is, is our hearts should be right in understanding when we proclaim the Lord's Supper, what that really means. We shouldn't make light of this because we're proclaiming his salvation, his goodness. And if we're his children, he's going to make us, he promises to complete the work he began in us. So then he will at any means necessary accomplish his promise because he does not break those. And some of us, that may be disciplined because we're holding too tightly to sin. And some of us, that may just be submission process that God can continue to move us through without ever having to experience that because we follow him to that. But either way, wherever you are, if you're here today and you're like, man, now you're talking about the sin and this idea of taking it. If we're going to take communion, we're going to proclaim God's goodness, then our life has to align to it. And you're like, man, but my life doesn't align to it. I've been doing this with this person, or I'm thinking this, or I keep struggling this way. Here's the, here's the best part. Here's the best thing. When we are repentant, our sin does not drive us away from the table or Jesus. It should drive us to him. When you repent, it doesn't, in guilt and shame, you don't repent in guilt and shame and hide. Instead, you run to the loving father who says, I have forgiven your sins. In me, you can be whole. In me, you can be forgiven and experience life. Repentance should drive us to the Savior, not away from him. However, if you are a Christian in sin and stubbornly unrepentant, then you're mocking what Jesus did on the cross to cleanse you from your sin when you take the Lord's Supper and, for, and refuse to, to seek forgiveness. We shouldn't be afraid of being repentant. In fact, 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So when we confess to him, he doesn't just maybe forgive us or will forgive us, he does forgive us. He is just to do so. And when we come to the Lord's Supper table, when we come to communion, we're proclaiming the salvation that is ours. Communion is our continued testimony of salvation. One thing we can miss about salvation is many of us can think of salvation as a one-time act. When I was 15 at this camp, I did this and I became saved. No, the scriptures teach that God is continually saving us over and over and over again. When we partake of communion, that's what we're declaring, that he has washed us clean of our sins. We're proclaiming of his goodness. Salvation is not just a one-time thing. God is always saving us. Look at Hebrews 3, 12 through 14. It says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ. We're going to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. No matter where you land on this theology, we believe exactly what this passage says, that those who hold firm to the end are those who, save, who are saved. I don't know all the what ifs for this, but that if you think you are saved, you can show it most by your endurance in it, through the hard times and the easy, in all places and times, no matter what you think of works, if I denounce Christ and continue to do that until the end, I am not saved. Communion is a continual giving of ourselves to the Lord as a symbol of our continued commitment to him. Taking communion doesn't save us, but is a sign that we are continuing to seek and grow in the Lord as we proclaim his goodness. And so we're gonna, we're gonna pass the communion here and we're gonna take a moment to examine ourselves first. But let me be clear on something. If you choose to take communion today, you're proclaiming that your sins are forgiven and that you live under the covering and kingship of the Lord Jesus. 
If you're not a follower of Jesus, please respect the sacredness of this act for those of us who are. If you're deciding right now today that you wanna follow Jesus, praise God. Let this be your first act of declaring the goodness of Jesus Christ. And then come, let us walk with you and talk about what it means to follow Jesus with our lives. I'm only gonna give you a few minutes to, to reflect, but during this reflection time, again, this isn't a reflection to, to, to define whether or not we are unworthy. If the scriptures, let me just say this very clearly, we are unworthy apart from Christ. But as you, as you examine your heart, there is something that the, the Holy Spirit convicts of you shows you that you are, you are in sin or shows you that you have, you have walked away from the Lord, then, then don't just wallow in that conviction. Use that conviction that the Holy Spirit is giving you to confess and repent before the Lord and turn from it. Turn from it and run to the Lord. You can partake of that in a beautiful way. Communion is not meant to be something that we idolize the, the, the practice of itself. Instead, we are supposed to focus it all on Jesus what he's done for us, what he's doing for us, and what he will do in his completion for us. All for his glory. So as you take a moment to reflect, I would encourage you to reflect on your life. And again, please hear me on this. If you are a follower of Jesus and you realize like, man, everything I've done for the last year or the last week or even last night, that's all paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. It does not keep you from taking this. What keeps you from taking this is your unwillingness to repent of it. If you're here today and you're, during this time of reflection, you realize like, man, I, I said something to that one uncle at Thanksgiving dinner that was not right and I thought something horrible to that person, then maybe you should get up and send a text or send a text real quickly to him. Tell him, hey, I did this, this was wrong, please forgive me. Make it right so that you can come as the body of Christ, not factioned, not divided by socioeconomic status or by race or by, by age or, or by any kind of things that we like, but instead unified ultimately as the body of Christ together. So let's take some time to examine it and then we will take communion together. Let me remind you of what you're saying by taking this. You're proclaiming that your life is not your own, that Jesus bought you with his blood. You're proclaiming that our, your cultural distinctions are of no more importance, but only your allegiance to Christ truly matters. You're proclaiming that you have covenanted with God and one another to be a family united in purpose and identity, standing up as the undivided body of Christ in the world. Would you guys please stand with me as we take communion? On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And Jesus, I just pray, come. I pray that we would be so enamored and excited about you coming that this world, the passions and the desires of this world would fade away that our lives wouldn't just be a declaration of you, but instead would be showing it on a daily basis, God. We wouldn't just talk about how we follow you, God, but that our lives would truly show who you are to this broken and lost world. God, even as I think of the family members that were probably around tables uh, oh, this last week where they just don't have any hope or know you, I pray that your bride would show you to this world.
that as we try as we strive to live for your goodness and live for your for your work i pray that you be glorified in it god i pray that we would be a people that are so marked by forgiveness by by confession repentance and forgiveness that people around us just want to belong to you because of that and god for the individuals that are here today that that didn't take of the cup, didn't proclaim of your goodness. God, I pray that you would just do a number on their hearts. Help them to see just how incredible you are, how much that you, they are loved, that there is no sin that they could do that is outside your reach for the blood of Jesus Christ. We thank you for this time together. We thank you for the community. And God, I pray that we would be a community of people that people would see and long to be a part of because of the way we treated one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. To find out more about our church, please visit revolution22.org. We encourage you to not neglect meeting together as believers. And may you continue to love God and love others.